0: if you would please, to Romans. I'm sorry, I'm not in Romans. Matthew chapter 5. I don't know how I got to Romans again, but Ro- uh, Matthew chapter 5, if you would please. About 30 years or so ago, I was involved in one of these really freak accidents. I was standing up on the side of a truck, on a truck fender, and I decided to jump off, and rather than very carefully climbing down, I just jumped off, and as I did, I slid my hand down the side of the truck, and my finger, my ring finger, this ring got caught on a uh, something that was on the side of the truck. And when it did, the whole weight of my body coming against that stretched the ring out, and then the ring sliced my finger off. There was a man who was standing nearby, and he saw what happened. So he reached down and got my finger, and uh, we got into his car and we sped off to the hospital. When we got there, the doctor said, well, I really don't think that we're going to be able to save your finger, and would you like us to just sort of cut it off evenly and leave you with a nub for your finger? Well, you know, I was sort of fond of that finger, and I said, I, I don't think that's going to work. So they sent me to a hospital that was about 80 miles away, and there were surgeons there. This is back in, in days when they were just sort of pioneering some of the techniques that they use. And uh, these surgeons were very interested in being able to reattach my finger. And so after 17 hours of microsurgery, they were able to do that. And then after months and months of rehabilitation with skin grafts and all kinds of visits to the doctors, we were able to save the finger. Now, what I had was not a life-threatening injury. I was kind of fond of the finger, that's that's true. But what I had was not a life-threatening injury. And there have been many people who had to make a decision over life or limb. They had something wrong and they had to make a decision. It's either save my life or lose this limb. You may remember just a few years ago, there was a young man who was hiking in a canyon in Utah and he fell. And when he did, there was a boulder that came crashing down and pinned him underneath. It actually pinned his hand underneath and he was unable to free himself. And so for six days, he was... Under that boulder and couldn't get loose. Until finally he made a gut-wrenching decision. And that was he took a utility knife, utility instrument. And he cut off his hand. And he did that in order to save his life. And that's because his life was more important than his limb. Now I want you to think about that story as we look in these next verses in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is attacking the problem of sin. And sin is so life-threatening... That whatever it takes at all cost, you need to deal with the problem of sin. Because it's not just a matter of losing your life, it's a matter of losing your soul in hell. In our text verses of today's message, Jesus talks about that. We're looking at verses 29 and 30 today in Matthew chapter 5. But I actually want to back up just a little bit and let's look at verse number 27 and begin reading there. Stand with me please as we read God's word. Matthew chapter 5 beginning with verse number 27. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you today. We we just ask you, Lord, to bless the reading of your word, bless this message as I bring, and help us to understand how deep this problem of sin is. And, Lord, we really need to do something about this. And thank the Lord you've actually done it for us. So We pray, Lord, you bless and help us to learn something from your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. The central theme of Jesus' message in the Sermon on the Mount was the exposition of righteousness and how that righteousness relates to the law of God. Jesus is here speaking to a crowd of people on a hillside in Galilee, This crowd was made up mostly of Jews, and for years they had been taught by their religious leaders. They thought that they had a pretty good foundation in the Word of God, and they were listening to all their interpretations of Scripture received from the scribes and Pharisees, not understanding that what they were getting was not the correct interpretation. Now, what these people received was not truth of Scripture, but they were actually getting Not what Bible said, but what their leaders said. And so they were given a wrong impression about how that a person can become righteous with God. The teaching that they were receiving was said that you have to keep a list of commands. There are all kinds of things that you must do. When in fact all of those laws and commands that they were told to keep were invented by their religious leaders. In addition to that, the Pharisees who taught were wrapped up in the letter of the law. They didn't understand really the spirit of God's law or what God's law was actually intended to do. Now essentially, they thought that they were already righteous. They didn't really need to be taught anything because they were good enough just the way that they were to get into the kingdom of God. But the problem that the Pharisees had is what I want to talk to you about today, which is a misunderstanding of sin. They didn't really understand the root of sin and how deeply that sin is ingrained in the human nature. You see, sin is not a matter of just externals. It's not just the outward acts that you do. But sin is a matter of the heart. And if they had understood the true depravity of the human heart, they would have realized that they were totally incapable to do anything about it or make themselves fit for the kingdom of God. And that's not a problem that's unique to the Pharisees. It didn't begin with them. It's as old as man himself. And today we still face the very same problem. It didn't end when the Pharisees were no longer a religious movement to be reckoned with. But we're facing the very same attitudes about this today. The same misunderstandings of it. So at this very hour, we need to deal with the very same issues that Jesus is talking about in this sermon. Now, I want to begin with this today as we look at these verses in Matthew chapter 5. Number one is the problem of sin. In essence, Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount are to expound the doctrine of sin. And so what he lays out before us here is a very desperate problem. It's one that is so deep and so terrifying that what it should do is drive us to the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, the right idea about sin, this right view of sin is so important, it is so fundamental, that without this, without understanding it, and without talking about it, there is not a preacher who can actually preach an evangelistic message. We cannot preach the gospel of Jesus Christ correctly unless we deal with this issue because this is the only thing that really makes us understand why the gospel is such good news. Now, that immediately shines the spotlight on much of our preaching today, and it shows us that what we're hearing from most churches and most preachers is, in fact, not the gospel of Jesus Christ at all. I really didn't intend to do this, but I I, I thought maybe I'd let this go by. But I I have to read this little thing that I cut out of the paper yesterday. And uh, I don't preach from the paper, but I thought this was pertinent. This was something that was said by the pastor of a 30,000-member congregation. He, said, or he was asked this question, if you had to sum up Christianity for someone hearing about it for the first time, what would you say? To a person who's never heard about Christianity, what would you say? He said, Christ came into the world that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. He came to give something to you, not to take something from you. If you open your heart and mind to that, you can receive it. Now that sounds like a pretty good statement, doesn't it? But if you had the opportunity to speak a person they, to a person they've never heard about Christ before in all of their life, they don't know anything about the message of Jesus Christ, what is the first thing that you would say to them? The first thing that I would say to them is exactly what John the Baptist said and exactly what Jesus said when he came preaching the kingdom of God. He said, you must repent. The very first thing that we're taught about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we are sinners And we must repent of our sin. And if you leave out that message of repentance, you really do not have a gospel at all. What we're here to do is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the minister's duty. And yet, if there is no preaching about sin and there is no preaching about hell, then we really do not have a gospel message at all. In these verses, sin is so serious that unless it is remedied, the end result of it is destruction in the eternal fires of hell. Now, the modern religionists may not like that. People may not like to talk about it, Preachers don't want to speak about that when they get up in their messages. But if we believe that Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God, if Jesus is really telling us the truth, then we must take the message of Jesus Christ just as it is and believe it as it is. And he shows us that the consequences of sin are, in fact, frighteningly real. Now, if you look at these verses again, you'll see that Jesus teaches that if it were possible... For you to eliminate sin by mutilating your body, that you'd be better off plucking out your eyes and cutting off your hand than you would be to take your body intact into hell. Now, Jesus is talking about sin. Sin is the transgression of God's law. It's the breaking of God's commandments. And since sin is defined in terms of the law, then it's vitally important for us to understand what the law is. What does the law say? What does the law mean? A few weeks ago, we looked at verse number 20, and I asked a very important question. What do the Scriptures mean? What do they actually say? Well, the Pharisees had a very inadequate view. They misinterpreted the Scriptures, and so they were then in the throes of an awful dilemma. Sin is the transgression of God's law, and if you don't understand what sin is, then you can be lured into thinking that you really haven't broken God's law at all. And so when the Pharisees interpreted the law to mean only the outward acts, those things that we do, then they missed the deeper spiritual intent of God's law. And again, friends, it is a matter of the heart. And the matter is that there is no person who is able to change his heart. Now, I want to give you two essential parts to the remedy for sin. First, sin is why we need a Redeemer. The helplessness of an individual to change his heart is why we need a Redeemer. What does that mean? What is a Redeemer? Well, in Scripture, a Redeemer is one who pays the price to secure the release of a convicted criminal. What is a lawbreaker? That's someone who breaks the law, isn't it? Someone who's committed a crime. We call a lawbreaker a criminal. Now, if we've broken God's law, then what does that make every one of us? Makes us criminals, doesn't it? We're criminals because we've broken God's law. And there is a penalty for breaking the law of God. And it's outlined in the Scriptures as being an eternal penalty. God says, if you break my law, then you must suffer the consequences, which is eternity in the fires of hell. Now, here Jesus gives the penalty. He calls it hell. And according to verses 29 and 30, he says that this is a place of, herish, of perishing. I know that there are many people who like to soften the blow when they read about hell in the Bible, and they'll soften the blow. And so they'll tell you, well, all that hell is is separation from God. That just means that you're going to be apart from God for all of eternity. Now, for many, many people, that's not such a bad thing. They don't really care about God anyway, so they don't care if they're separated from God for eternity. Jesus speaks about hell in a different way. Now, for sure, it is separation from God, but he goes way beyond that, and he calls hell a place of suffering. He calls it a place of fire. If you go back up to verse number 22 in chapter 5, you'll see this. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be what? In danger of hell fire. If you look at Matthew chapter 18, Jesus reiterates these very same teachings in Matthew 5, and 30, when he says this, Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Now there you see that Jesus describes hell as fire. And if I wanted to do a full exposition on hell today, we would find that Jesus speaks of this as a place where there's weeping, he says there's wailing, there's gnashing of teeth. You can't escape the fact that Jesus says hell is a place of awful torment and punishment. And he doesn't say that just one time. Throughout the gospel accounts, he says that seven times. What Jesus has come to do, though, is to redeem us from that penalty of hell. All of us are sinners, and so the Word of God teaches it in multiple places. We are sinners, we are lawbreakers, we are criminals. And what Jesus came to do was to take that punishment of hell for us. He diverts the punishment of hell by paying the price that God demands for sin. Now, that's just one of the reasons why the gospel is such good news. Gospel means, the very word means good news, and it isn't properly understood until we understand what was facing us and the penalty that was paid by Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. But that's not all that we talk about when we talk about the gospel of Christ. Uh, It's not just redemption in Christ. That's good news for us. But we also need this. Sin is why we need regeneration. Because we are sinners, we need to be regenerated. Sin is not just an outward act. We go back to verse number 21, and there we learned how Jesus spoke of murder. Murder was the outward act, but Jesus took it down deeper. He took it down to an issue of the heart, and so he began to speak about anger. And he said that anger, if you're angry against your brother, that is also murder. He takes it down to the heart. He follows that up with teachings about adultery. Adultery is the outward act, and that's what we think But Jesus takes it deeper. He takes it down to lust. That's an issue of the heart. Now friends, the heart is uncontrollable because every one of us has a heart that's continually bent towards sin. Every person that's born into the world comes out of his mother's womb in exactly the same condition. There is evil, there is war, there is crime, there is selfishness, there is lust, there is greed. We have all of those things because of what is deep down in the human heart. All of us are sinners, I'm just like you, you're just like me, and all of our children are exactly alike. Brother Dalton is fond of quoting our missionary, Brother Tim Eckno, on this. People ask him, Brother Eckno, uh, you, your children seem to be angels, they behaved so well. And, and Brother Eckno always says, yes, they're angels, they're fallen angels. You see, you weren't born differently from this, and neither was I. David said, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. Here's what happened. You see, in our natural birth, we were given a wicked heart. We came out sinful from our birth. And you know why? Because our father had a sinful nature. He had a sinful nature and he passed it along to us. Just like you get your flesh and your bones, just like you get your genetic makeup from your parents, you also get this sinful nature that's passed on to you. Now what that means to us then is that we're all naturally this way. That's what we are. I mean, that's, that's just what we are. We can't change that. That's ingrained in us. That's what we're made of. Jeremiah stated it this way. He said, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. Do you see what Jeremiah says? Can, can a white man change into a black man? Can a black man change into a white man? Could an Indian become a Semite? Could an elephant become a rhinoceros? No. And as surely as we can't change our skin, and there's not an animal that can morph into a different species, there's no way that we can change our hearts to actually become righteous in the eyes of God. So what do we need? Well, let me put it to you this way. You have to start all over again. You have to start again. Again. The Bible says you must be born again. And when you're born again, that's when you receive this different heart. You receive a changed heart. You have to be changed from that attitude that you have, from you, the heart that you have that's bent towards sin, to receive a heart that's bent towards the righteousness of God. And that's what we call regeneration. Jesus said in John 3, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, do you know that a birth is a perfect analogy for for really what happens to us? In your birth, how many of you talked it over with your parents before you were born? And you said, well, you know, I I sure would like to be born. I, I think it's time that you took care of this matter. I need to be a human being. And so parents, here's what I want you to do. Please give me birth course not. You, you didn't have any part in that. You, you couldn't ask for it. You couldn't negotiate all the body parts and say, well, here everything is. I mean, it's uh, you know, it needs to be assembled. Can you take care of that for me? No, you know that you're unable to do that. You didn't fill out a consent form before you got born. And friends, neither do you in the new birth. God regenerates. God changes the heart because you do not have the ability to do so. And so we need this new birth. It only comes from God and that's the remedy for our sin. And then once that new birth has been effected in us, then we have the ability to live for Christ. Then we can abandon all of those outwardly sinful acts. And never make this mistake. Christ is not trying to minimize the outward acts in any way. But what he must do, he must get down to where it all starts, to the root of the whole thing. He has to take it to the heart. Sin is deeper than the outside. And so until God changes you on the inside, then all that lust and anger, the selfishness, the pride, all of those things that are the root of sin, those things are still all in you and they will control you. So now when we understand that part of it, this problem of sin, then we can get to Jesus' teachings in verses 29 and 30. Understand that the root of all sin is a problem of the heart. And so now we can talk about parting from sin. How do we part from sin? What does Jesus mean when he says, pluck out your right eye and cut off your right hand? What does that mean? Is Jesus advocating some kind of physical mutilation? And if we do that, then that's going to make us righteous in God's eyes? Did you know that there are religious men who actually fought that way? There were some men who had themselves castrated because they thought that would take away the lust that was in their heart. There have been people who beat themselves that went through self-flagellation, had open wounds all over their bodies because they thought that those kinds of things would remove the evil that's deep down in their heart. There are some people who have blinded themselves and they thought that that would stop the lust of their eyes. But did you know that if you followed what Jesus says here and you plucked out your right eye because you thought that would make you holy, you know what happened? Your other eye would be looking as hard as it can to find all the things that the right eye is missing. It'd be trying to find everything evil that it could possibly get into. If you cut off your hand because you thought that was going to make you righteous on the inside, your other hand would be twice as busy doing what you really want to do. So what is Jesus really saying? Well, understand this, that at the time that Jesus is talking, the right, the right hand, the right eye, is the thing that's most important. The right always symbolizes what is better. And we use the same kind of terminology today. I may say, well, this person is my right-hand man. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that that person is the most important to me. Here's the person that I rely on the most. He's the best. As far as I'm concerned, he's the one that I need. And this is what Jesus is saying. It's better for you to get rid of those things that you think are the most important to you if those are the kinds of things that lead you into sin. Let me give you an example. For young people or old people alike, sometimes there are people that you consider to be your very good friends, but they aren't Christians. And so you hang out with them and you find that you end up going places that you ought not to go. And you start doing some things that you shouldn't do. Jesus is saying you need to get rid of those kinds of friends even if you think they are so important to you. If they lead you into evil then you need to get rid of them. All these things that are important to you. Now Jesus even talks about this uh, as we're looking at it right after talking about lust. And if there are things in your life like computers and TVs and magazines that you think that you have to have, they have to be there for your entertainment value, and that's the most important thing to you. Jesus is saying that you'd be better off throwing those things out in the yard if they feed your lust that's in your heart. Now, here's the positive aspect of living a holy, sanctified life. Some people, a couple of weeks ago, when I, when I was preaching about righteousness versus rules, some of you may have gone skipping and hopping outside of the church because you said, oh, great. Pastor Smith says we no longer have to worry about rules. We don't have to worry about regulations anymore. None of that thing is important. It's all about what's in your heart, so you don't worry about the things that you do. Well, if you think that, then you've actually missed the point. You missed Jesus' point of this. Did you know that there's been a charge that's leveled at Bible-believing Christians for years? I'm talking about those of us who believe that once you're saved, that you can never lose your salvation. God eternally saves you. And do you know what the charge leveled at Christians who believe this? You know what it is? Now you have a license to sin. Because you're a saved person, You, you can't Lose your salvation. Now you can just do anything that you want to do. doesn't make any difference. You're not going to lose it, so sin any way that you want. You know, a person who thinks like that, and who thinks that I preach, you know, because I preach that what's in your heart, that's the most important thing. Your heart is more important than your outward actions. And those who think like that and think, well, now we have this great license to sin, you really do not understand the point. You've still got a problem with your heart. A person who thinks and acts like that, It's a person who's mixed up about this because we don't have a license to sin. And I'm not saying that. But when we look at this, we look at our Christian liberty not as a license to sin, but as a license to serve God acceptably. To serve Him in spirit and in truth. To serve Him the way God wants us to serve Him. We have a license for righteous living given to us by the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. Now here is the thing, if, if your salvation does not change your life and your living, then you didn't actually get it. You didn't get what the Word of God speaks of. And so rather than having a license to sin, what do we have? We have a license to positively pursue righteousness. We hunger and we thirst after righteousness. And isn't that a characteristic of the kingdom of God? We learned it in the Beatitudes. In fact, that is the underlying principle. It's a defining characteristic to be righteous. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. So what do we do? Well, first we have to resist the flesh. Resist the flesh. In Scripture, resisting the flesh means to resist the the impulses of the fleshly nature. And this is not something that you can be passive in. Surely as water runs downhill, if you aren't active in this, you are going to run downhill. Paul had an interesting way of putting this when he talks about his active resistance. He states it this way in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Most commentators agree that Paul is there using a boxing metaphor and he was often fond of using these athletic terms to get points across and what he's actually saying is I beat my body black and blue. I do everything necessary to keep myself from doing what I would naturally want to do. I remember reading a story about a fellow who was driving down the street and he saw a pretty girl in a short skirt getting out of her car and there's probably not a man in here today who can't identify with that. So he saw this pretty girl. He glanced over He saw it, and he decided to do a double take. Now, that was okay. The first part was okay. He, He looked, and he accidentally saw it. But the second glance caused him to drive into the back of a parked car. Now, Paul means here, if I have to smack myself in the head to keep myself from taking that second look, then that's what I'll do. He says it another way in Romans thirteen fourteen. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Do you, do you know what that means? Make not provision for the flesh. It means when you do things that make it easy for you to sin. You no, know, Christians do that. They, they do things that make it easy for them to sin. It's like, it's like being an alcoholic. And you go to a restaurant and you ask to be seated next to the bar. Or it's like being a compulsive gambler and going to Las Vegas to watch the shows. And it's like the guy, you know, who buys the Playboy to read the articles. The very same thing. We have to resist the flesh. So that if your eye offends you, then you pluck it out. If your hands and your feet are busy putting you in places of temptation, you'd be better to cut them off. Now, it might be good for us to just think about the word offend for just a minute. If your hand offends thee, your right eye offends thee. What, what does he mean by offend? You know, we use the word offend today, and we think, well, that means to hurt somebody's feelings. But originally, the word meant, the one we have here in the King James Bible, when it says offend, it has the meaning of catching you, putting, catching you in a snare, causing you to stumble or fall, causing you to fall into a trap. And so what he's saying here is there's something in your life that is a snare to you, if there's something that caused you to fall into the trap of sin, he says sever that thing from your life. And so you resist the flesh. Secondly, we have to restrain the flesh. The 26th chapter of Matthew, Jesus says, Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You see, in every Christian, there is this renewed heart. God has given that through regeneration. And this new heart that we have is willing and able to follow Christ's leadership. But there's also this fleshly nature that's still in us. That's not gone from us. And given half an opportunity, the fleshly nature is going to try to go after sin. And so you have this struggle that's going on in your life all the time. There's this struggle that I will do the will of God I'll be what God wants me to be. I'll do what he wants to do. But now, on the other hand, there's that struggle that I want to lend myself or I want to follow all the dictates of the flesh and go back into the sin that I used to do before. Paul called it warfare. Romans chapter 7, he said, There's a war that's going on inside of me. There's one side that's pulling me over to fulfill the lust of the flesh, and then there's this other side of me that's constraining me to do the works of the Spirit. And you know what it caused Paul to do? Read Romans chapter 7 and you'll see there it caused him to cry out for help. God help me with this. Deliver me from it. This is what Jesus is saying in Matthew twenty six forty one: Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. So if you're going to avoid these kinds of things, what you have to do is to call on the strength of the Lord. You have to draw on this spiritual power supply that's inside of you because you are insufficient always to do it on your own. Now, what God does for us in salvation, He not only gives us saving grace, not only the saving grace that delivers us from the penalty of hell, but God also gives us sustaining grace. There is no person that ever... Began in the spirit and completed himself in the flesh. That's what Paul says in Galatians. You can't begin in the spirit and then be made perfect by the flesh. So Jesus says you must watch and pray. Actively restrain your flesh. Keep it from doing what it otherwise would do. And you do that by the power that God supplies. To hold back evil desires. Now thirdly, what must we do? We must realize the prophet Realize the prophet. There is something profitable in this. Verse twenty nine says, For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Sometimes people look at the law of God and they think the only thing God is interested in is killing my fun. God to kill joy why he's got all these rules and things that he wants us to keep he just doesn't want me to have any fun he doesn't want me to enjoy my life and so god's carrying around this big stick and whenever he sees me doing something wrong he's ready to slap me at the slightest provocation i don't know if any of you ever went to catholic school but but who, who who's god in catholic school mother superior whatever they call her and and when you do something wrong what you do is you got that rule, he slaps you right on the hand Well, here's here's the thing about God. You see, God has a long-range view of everything. He sees the picture from the beginning to the end. So God has never made a bad command. Everything that God tells us to do is for our profit. And so if he were to tell you, pluck out your eyes, and he says that'll keep you from evil, then then he wouldn't command that if it wasn't for your good. God commands all of these things to ensure our eternal uh, welfare. You see, we have these rewards that that are, are given to us when we get to heaven. The Lord of God says that those things are given to us for our faithful service. And the thing that God is interested in is that you continually give him the glory for everything that you do. Keep giving him the glory because in turn, he keeps making heaven better and better for you. He has all these rewards that he wants to give for faithful service. And, and it comes at the price of obedience. It's profitable for you. Whenever you part from sin, when you separate from that, it is never grievous to you. It's always profitable. Now, fourthly, what must we do? We must recognize the priorities. Recognize the priorities. There are some priorities that are here for a Christian. The first priority is this you, you must prioritize eternity. Eternity is more important than time. It's better for you to pluck out your eye or cut off your hand than to go through life with them and then spend eternity in the fires of hell. Now, do you understand that this is one of the hardest things to get people to recognize? There are people who look at this 70 or 80 years that we live in this life. They look at that one little tiny grain of sand among all the grains of sand that are on the seashores of the world. And our life here is like that one little tiny grain of sand and that one grain of sand is the thing that is the most important to them. And whether it's a lost person who wants to live it up and do everything he wants to do, or it's a saved person who will not live for Christ, it all comes from the same place, they do not prioritize eternity. They do not understand that this life is not as important as what comes hereafter. And so, no matter what it is, no matter what it is that has to be cast aside, your arms, your legs, your feet, no matter what, it's not worth going to hell for. Eternity is the most important thing. The second priority is about your soul. Your soul is more important than your body. And this is really the contrast, isn't it? That, that guy who cut his hand off that was underneath the boulder realized that his life, saving his life, was more important than his hand. But you have all of these people that spend all their time worrying about the physical body. What's going to happen to me right here? Worrying about this body rather than worrying about their soul's welfare. And you know what they're doing? They're keeping their hand underneath that rock and they won't cut it off. They're content to have the boulder trap them until they lose it all. It's more important to keep your soul than it is your body. Jesus said, for what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world? And lose his own soul, or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You see, you can imagine the very worst thing that could happen to you. Imagine your worst, most terrifying fear, the very, very worst that you can possibly think of. And it's not as scary as spending one minute in the fires of hell. Now, the third priority is about your purity. Your purity is more important than your pleasure. Now here we come back once again to this overarching principle taught in verse number 20. And we're going to keep coming back to that because this is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's the whole point of Jesus' teachings concerning the law. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. And the righteousness that surpasses is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is God's own righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. A pure heart is one that's been regenerated. It's one that has been changed by faith in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You see, the pleasures of your life without Christ, they won't sustain you in bad times. Those kinds of pleasures won't give you any kind of comfort when you have a grieving heart. Those kinds of things won't take care of you and give you hope when you lose your job. Solomon, who was the wisest man who ever lived, called all of these things of life, all the pleasures of life, he said they are all vanity and vexation of spirit. And what he meant by that was, you have a pleasure, it's gone, and then what do you have to have? Another pleasure. That's gone, and you look for another one. You continually seek all these things that are in your life, and they're never sustaining, they're never fulfilling. You're always thirsting for another one. Now, here's what I can promise you today. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, and if you follow Him, the pleasure of it never goes away. And the best thing of all, He gives you eternal life in the end. So what is it that's holding you back? What what kinds of things that are in your life that are really more important to you than to win Christ? Jesus says it's better for you to pluck out your eyes. It's, be, it's better for you to cut off your head. It's better to do all those things than it is to enter into the everlasting fires of hell. But here's the good news about the whole thing. You don't have to pluck out your eyes. And you don't have to cut off your hands. And you don't have to go to hell. And that's because you can put your faith in Jesus Christ today. You can trust him. And Jesus Christ will change your heart. What are you willing to do for Christ? I'm not about physical things. I'm not talking about all good works that you do. That's the Pharisee's position. I mean, what is most important to you? Is it losing your life or is it saving your soul? Pluck or perish, that's what Jesus says. You must trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly as we come to you in this time. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ who has come to remedy this awful problem of sin. And we all have to admit, because your word says it, it is so clear everywhere that we turn, all of us are sinners. We are naturally this way, and we cannot do anything about it. The only one who can is Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you have paid the penalty for our sins upon the cross. We thank that you've taken it all away from us, and we receive that wonderful gift by faith in you. Speak to some heart today, Lord. Help us to turn to you. And for Christians who have things in their lives that that hinder their service to you, may we resist the flesh, may we restrain our flesh, and may we serve you in all holiness as you would have us do. Lord, we pray for pure hearts. Speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.